Well, good morning. It's a joy to be with you this morning and have the opportunity to worship our Savior together, reflect on His goodness, His mercy, and His love. And thank you for uh, the hospitality. Uh, you should not have put me up in the mansion that you put me up in. Uh, that beautiful, huge house as you drive in, apparently I'm staying there. The problem is my expectations have been ruined for the next time I come. <laughs> should have put me in a hole in the ground and I would have been fine. But it's a joy to be here. The hospitality has been warm. And it's true, uh, you all are way more hospitable than uh, anybody from my neck of the woods. I live in Portland, uh, one of the grumpiest cities in America. Um, and you people are just really nice. And, and it's shocking that I haven't moved here yet. But it is, uh, it is a joy to be with you. And I want to take a few minutes and reflect with you on our call to care for God's creation. Genesis 1 and 2, uh, these two creation stories that we have in the Bible, we are immediately swept into God's agenda. And that is that immediately we find in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, that God not only is the creator of the universe, but that God, by virtue of the Spirit of God, is now hovering over creation. Of course, as we continue in the story of Genesis, uh, nearing the end of chapter 2, we find God comes to Adam and Eve and gives them their assignment. Your job is to take care of the garden. My Old Testament professor friends, who are more well-equipped to translate Hebrew into English, are quick to point out that the phrase, to take care of, in Genesis chapter 2, is often translated in other parts of the Hebrew text as to worship. The implication being that to care for the Garden of Eden is actually an act of worshiping God. Now, it is not uncommon to have somebody uh, in a setting like this to ask the question, um, can you be an environmentalist and a Christian? I would be curious if anybody else could name another religion that starts with gardening. In fact, I'd be curious to find any other religion in which the God of that religion comes out of the grave and the first people who see him think that he's a gardener. And it turns out when the woman saw Jesus resurrected, said, is that the gardener? She wasn't all that wrong. Because the first image of God in the Bible is of a God who plants a garden. I met Jesus when I was 16 years old. Uh, I had a dramatic conversion experience when I was a young man at 16. And I was raised uh, in the Pacific Northwest. I was raised in Oregon. And I was raised in a very progressive, Portland-esque household. Uh, what I've come to call an NPR family. And being raised in an NPR family, I was raised as an only child with a very strong environmental sensibility. Uh, I was raised in a non-Christian home, but when I became a Christian, uh, I began to find that Christianity talked about the environment, particularly conservative evangelicalism, talked about the environment in a very different way than my upbringing. Uh, after just a few years, I had actually had the opportunity to invite my mother to Jesus, and Jesus and my mom became a Christian. I baptized my mom when I was about 22 years old. 
And when my mom became a Christian, my dad and my parents had been divorced when I was 11 years old. Um, uh, my dad is a, a, a Buddhist. He does not identify as a Christian, but a very strong environmentalist. And my mom became an evangelical and had very strong feelings as a new evangelical about the environment. And I was in this new place in my life, uh, this very odd experience of I could talk to my dad about the environment, but not God. And I could talk to my mom about God, but not the environment. And I had an epiphany very early on in my Christian walk that too many young people are raised in a church in which they're not allowed to talk about Jesus and the creation at the same time. And the truth is, I think it's really harming us. Because there is no religion in the world that is more fundamentally green than the Christian faith. The first moment when Jesus himself dies, I would call it the first earth day, Jesus is put into the earth for a whole day to resurrect. And I know even saying these sorts of things, what does it mean to care for the earth and be a Christian, brings up all sorts of emotions. And some of us have just, as maybe I have, I'm not uncomfortable with being called a tree hugger. Because to hug something does not imply you worship it. To care for creation does not mean you worship it. Some of you are a bit more hesitant. You're willing to give a tree a hug, but it's more of a side hug, really. Sort of. (laughs) Like, ah. And some of you uh, maybe have sort of approached it from an entirely different perspective and said that this is not a responsibility of a Christian. But I want to reflect for a few minutes with you on how and why the Spirit of God is calling his church to care for the creation that God cares so deeply for and has placed us in the middle of and said, would you take care of this for me? I want to point out three aspects of the Holy Spirit in the Bible as it relates to creation. The first is I want to speak about the Holy Spirit as the baptizer of creation. When I say that, I mean that from the very beginning, we find that the Spirit of God is deeply intertwined with the created order. Yes, there's an important distinction. One is eternal, one is in the Godhead, and of course, one is a finite, non-eternal creation. But the Spirit immediately is described as hovering over the created realm. This is in verse 1 and 2 of our Bible. The first picture of the Spirit as as God's Spirit hovers over everything God has made, over the tohu vavahu, the vast array, the, the chaos. And of course, in the history of the church, unfortunately, the Spirit hasn't always gotten the attention that probably the Spirit demands. But as Craig Keener has pointed out in his phenomenal book, <clears throat> the Spirit is always willing to point to the other members of the Trinity. The Spirit is the other-oriented being in in the Trinity. That the Spirit is comfortable pointing to Jesus, pointing to the Father. But as the Spirit is the pointer, let us not forget the Spirit himself. Of course, at the very beginning in the Bible, early church, we find in Acts chapter 19, that as Paul comes to the Ephesian church, he comes and he asks, uh, have you heard of the Holy Spirit? And this uh, signed, sealed, and delivered community of new Christians said, we have no, no, we've never heard of this Holy Ghost. The Ephesians Christians had never even heard of the Holy Spirit. Stanley Burgess in his book on the Holy Spirit says, sadly, a similar response could have been anticipated had the same question been posed to individual believers in today's time as well. Have you heard of the Holy Spirit? We've never heard 
of him. In fact, in the early church, the Holy Spirit was such a controversial being <laughs> that there was a whole class of people called the pneumatomicoi, which are these, uh, the, the fighters against the Holy Spirit, who literally, their entire identity was fighting against the notion that the Spirit of God was divine. There was a whole group of raving people who were mad about the Holy Spirit being divine. Now, in the history of the church, we have all of these theologians who have reflected on the sort of ignorance of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Gregory of Nazianzus, of course, in the fourth century, sarcastically called the Holy Spirit the pneuma agraptas, the one whom nobody is willing to write about. Emil Brunner called the Holy Spirit the stepchild of, the, uh, of theology. Uh, uh, Arthur Hurd called the Spirit the dark continent of the Christian life. George Sirks once called the Holy Spirit the Cinderella of the Trinity. While the other two are off at the ball, she is left scrubbing the floor. Even other theologians, Sally McFagan, in one of her books, comments that <clears throat> she actually overheard somebody once say, I pray to the Spirit because I know the Father and Son are probably too busy. And in many respects... The sort of ignorance of the Holy Spirit, I think, has probably resulted in a lot of things in our church today, hasn't it? The famed missionary C.T. Studd once said, how little chance the Holy Ghost has nowadays. The churches and missionary societies have so bound him in red tape that they can basically practice Christianity while asking him to sit in the corner of the room. In a general sense, I would argue that a lot of our theology has gentrified the Holy Spirit out of the life of creation. We see no connection between the Spirit of God and creation. And I want to suggest to you this morning that you cannot read the biblical text and say that the Spirit of God is not involved with this created realm. In fact, when you look at the creation story in the Bible and you compare it with the other religious creation stories in the ancient world, there are some fascinating similarities. It turns out, when I was a student at the University of Oregon, which is not known as being sort of the center of Christian thought in the Pacific Northwest. When I was a student at the University of Oregon, I remember having an anthropology professor who had us read the creation story in the Bible and all the other religious creation stories in the other religions, the Akkadians, the Babylonians, the Phoenicians, the Babylonians, so on and so on and so forth. And I remember he was so excited to have us read these creation stories because he wanted to point out to us, see, they're all so similar because there are some really interesting similarities between them all. And he argued, you, you, the Jewish uh, writers just copy and pasted from all these other religions, can't you tell? To which I think at that time I, I was able to figure out pretty quickly in an ancient world where religions hated each other, usually murdered each other, didn't have Instagram, Snapchat, Instagram, any sort of ability to communicate with each other. The fact that in an ancient world where they all hated each other and they all agreed on something probably was evidence that something actually had to have happened. This is not evidence against the truth of the story, it's evidence of the truth of the story. Now, what's interesting are not the similarities. What I find interesting are the differences. For example, in the creation story in the Bible versus the other religions, number one, the creation story in the Bible is the only one in which women are made in the image of God. In all the other religious creation stories, women are basically seen as footnotes and mistakes. They are tertiary to the story of God. But in the creation story of the Bible, immediately God creates man and woman together as the image of God. Of God. We should not forget this when we celebrate Easter in a few weeks as Jesus himself comes out of the grave. It is the dude disciples who are in a room terrified as the women go and see the resurrected Lord. Going back and telling the men he has been resurrected. Can women preach?
we wouldn't know about Easter. The dudes would still be in the room, <laughs> terrified. The creation story in the Bible is the only one that says women are made in the image of God, fundamentally at its core. I don't know a religious text that is as affirming of women as this book. Number two, the creation story in the Bible is the only one in which the God who creates gives a day of rest. Only this God, all the other gods treat people like slaves. You work seven days a week, only this God says, I want you to work hard for six days, but rest a day a week. In fact, I think that the image of the Sabbath in Genesis 1 and 2 is the first image of the gospel in the whole Bible. Adam and Eve were made on day six. Day seven was a day of rest. Adam and Eve's first day of existence was a day of rest. At the end of the day, friends, that goes against everything the devil wants to teach us, which is that you work and then God gives you rest. And the biblical story says you rest first and then out of that you get your work done. Any message that ever says that you repent, you change, you go to church, you stop cussing, stop sleeping around, do your homework, and then God loves you is not good news. That is fake good news. It is the gospel that says, first and foremost, you rest in Jesus, and out of that, then get your work done. Amen. So the Sabbath, we literally worship the God who invented the weekend. <laughs> right? And the third difference is that the creation story in the Bible is the only one in which God says that everything he has made is good. And did you notice that God cannot get through a day of making stuff without congratulating himself. <laughs> he can't get through a day without going, that's awesome. Look at that, look at that, awesome. He gets to the final, he said, that's really awesome. And at the end of the day, many of us sort of interpreted that the highest day of creation is day six when God made Adam and Eve. I think Abraham Heschel was absolutely right. That the, that's true if the sixth day is the final day. But Sabbath is the final day. The climax of creation is the moment when everything that God has made is at peace with the creator and with one another and they are enjoying the goodness of God. But there is no religion in the world that is as pro-matter as this book. Matter matters in the Bible. Matter matters. And over, so much so, by the way, the biblically imagery through the whole biblical text over and over and over connects you and I to the importance of soil and getting in the ground. I should point out that Adam is, is, is paralleled by Adama. Adam's name is, this, is basically the same name as soil. In Song of Solomon, uh, honestly, uh, uh, Song of Songs, a book that I'm not going to let my son read until he's 16 or 18 years old. It's such a graphic novel. It's a picture of sensuality between God and his, his wife, Israel. Isn't it fascinating that when God describes the beauty of his wife, he does it in terms of geographical beauty. Her teeth are like the sheep of Bashan. Her breasts are like the mountains of... I mean, he goes on... He, you can't speak about the people of God without talking about the beauty of creation. And the point is, friends, 
I think that the Bible is not as comfortable with the separation between the created realm and the Spirit of God as we are. I think the Spirit of God is what gives breath to all of creation. That this realm is the realm of God's Spirit. In fact, in Ephesians 4, verse 10, Paul, in reflecting on the Pentecost psalm, says that at Pentecost, the Spirit comes and has filled the whole universe. My point being, friends, that the Spirit is embodied in matter, in place. It still hovers. He still hovers. The second thing is that not only is the Spirit uh, the, the, the one who embodies creation and, and, and baptizes creation with His presence, but secondly, the Spirit is as well the sustainer of creation. I love John's gospel probably mostly because of John's emphasis on the love of God. I love that John can't write anything without talking about God's love. He writes his letters, God is love, God is love, God is love. If you don't love your brothers or sisters, then you have not yet known the God of love. I love when John writes his gospel how much he speaks about the love of God. John talks about love so much that he doesn't even name himself in the gospel. In fact, he gives us his nickname. He is the one who Jesus loves. He can't even talk about himself without talking about the love of God. I have always found it comical, by the way, that none of the other gospel writers give him that same nickname. As if to say, we had nicknames for him, but that was not the one that we gave him. When John says in John 3.16, for God so loved the world. New Testament scholars have been quick to point out that that phrase, that word cosmos, as Howard Snyder, I'm, I'm sure, pointed out yesterday, that phrase cosmos is a bit more expansive than probably we're comfortable with. Because cosmos, the, the, the world, <clears throat> in, in the ancient language, did not just speak to the human parts. It spoke to everything that God had made to the wind, to the stars, to the moon, to pomegranates, to my six chickens, that God loves all of creation in Jesus. Colossians 1, Paul himself reflects, in Christ all things are held together. My friend Nate Petzl wrote his master's dissertation on that and actually argued it's literally the love of God that keeps an atom from exploding. That it is the presence of Jesus in all creation that holds all things together. And the point is, friends, that the Spirit is the one who brings about the creatio continua, the ongoingness of creation. I have to, I'm a Pentecostal, and I have to constantly qualify myself when I'm talking about this with Pentecostals and remind them that I'm not arguing that the initial sign of the evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life is recycling. Because at the end of the day, it's not, that's not what this is about. This is not, recycling is important, but that, you, you, can, you can recycle, by the way, and be a child of the devil. Uh, there's a, a phenomenal book written by a Jewish scholar by the name of Simon Shema called Landscape and Memory, and he talks about some of the first uh, recycling programs in Europe and Western Europe. Um, what, there was a regime in Western Europe in the 1940s that <clears throat> started some of the first recycling programs, got their kids outside, treated the land as though it was pure and holy, and of course... We are grieved to learn that it was the Third Reich. 
Some of the first recycling that's ever happened happened by the same people that killed millions and millions of Jews. And the point being, you can still recycle and be a child of the devil. But at the end of the day, the thing that makes the church what it is is not that we are a people who are oriented around justice. We're not oriented around justice. We are oriented around the God of justice. And too often, friends, we are quick to replace Jesus with justice. And friends, the minute we do that, all we will do is follow the next justice fad available to us. But when you follow Jesus, you are oriented to worship God and you're sustainable. You can have sustainable justice. I know so many friends who have burned out on worshiping justice because it's exhausting finding out the next thing you're supposed to be outraged about. <laughs> we don't worship the next fad of justice. We worship the God of justice who can sustain the love of God in our lives. By the way, I can point out to you, uh, Earth Day, fascinating enough, uh, the second Earth Day, the first one was Jesus, the second one was the actual Earth Day that we talk about, and it turns out, you know who started Earth Day? The first Earth Day was started by a Christian, the son of the people who started the Assemblies of God by the name of John McConnell, he was a Christian, and John McConnell started Earth Day for one reason, he wanted to preach the gospel of Jesus to all of his friends who loved creation and didn't know if Christians cared. Earth Day was started as a witness to the gospel of Jesus. And my point in saying that is this. Friends, the Spirit of God not only hovers over creation, but empowers the church to care for the garden today. We worship God. And actually, many of my early Pentecostal uh, brothers and sisters, as uh, Pentecostal, I love, I love looking at early Pentecostal history. It actually turns out that all the earliest Pentecostals were all pacifists. And they were pacifists, they didn't believe in war because they believed to participate in the kingdom of the earth was to not participate in the kingdom of God. They may have gone a little far with that. I don't know. That's not my point of talking today. But I love the Pentecostal social ethic because they did it for one reason. They knew Jesus was coming back. And they emphasized everything they did on Jesus is coming back. If Jesus is coming back, let us prepare a place for him to come that he could be proud. By the way, some of you used to be babysitters, and you remember when you were kids... There's a very big difference in babysitting between knowing when the parents are coming home and not knowing when the parents are coming home. <laughs> because when you, not, you don't know when they're coming home, you have to keep the place clean the whole time. But when you know when they're coming home, you'll wait until the last hour and then you'll clean up. And we should never forget that Jesus himself said that he will come like a thief in the night. He will come. He has not given us the date. And that means that our job isn't to wait till the last hour to clean it up. Our job is to care for it today. And the third thing I want to suggest to you is that the Spirit, yes, is the sustainer of creation. Thirdly, that the Spirit of God is the healer of creation. Now, it turns out when we, when we go into the, the Hebrew text a bit further, we, when we dive deeper, we find that there's this deep connection between reconciliation and the Holy Spirit. For example, in Isaiah chapter 11, some of you will remember that messianic text where the prophet gives us this image of the coming one he called the Mashiach, the Messiah, upon whom the Spirit, the anointed one, the Spirit of God would come. 
in Isaiah 11, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy with justice. He will give decisions for the poor of the earth. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw with the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra and the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. And of course, when Isaiah describes this, he's describing a moment when a spirit-anointed one would come, and when that one comes, you will know that he's here because all of these things that are normally enemies will all of a sudden start being friends. Lions don't lay down with lambs. I would never put my infant next to a cobra. Cows don't eat with bears. And when Isaiah describes the coming of the Messiah, he can't get through speaking about it without talking about the ramifications of that Messiah coming. Because when the Messiah will come, all the things that normally kill and hate each other will all of a sudden be at peace. Now it's interesting. When Jesus is baptized, he comes up out of the water, the Father speaks to him, the Spirit comes down upon him, which, by the way, the earliest church, you, you couldn't look at that story and not begin to believe there's some kind of trinity going on here. Either there's one God in three persons, and Jesus came up out of the water, ran up to heaven, yelled down at himself, went up, came down upon himself in the form of a spirit, and it's all, that's weird. <laughs> or there's actually three beings, three persons. And when Jesus is baptized, you immediately find that Jesus is sent into the desert by the Spirit. And it is only in Mark's gospel, there's a comment, when Jesus goes into the desert, it is only in Mark's gospel that after Jesus is tempted by the devil, we find that Jesus is in the desert. And who is there with him? The angels attended him, and only Mark's gospel tells us this, and he was with the wild animals. Now, many of the early church fathers were quick to pick up on things. They, were, they loved reading the text and seeing it in light of the Old Testament. And many of the early church fathers, when they saw Jesus hanging out with a bunch of animals that would have just normally destroyed him, when they saw that, they saw that as the sign that what Isaiah had talked about was finally here. Because when Jesus comes, normal enemies start loving each other. Jesus called Matthew the tax collector. He was a big government guy. He was a Democrat. <laughs> His job depended on the wellness of the federal system. And Jesus also called Simon the zealot. Anti-government guy, wanted the whole thing to come down. He's a libertarian. <laughs> and Jesus looks at both of them and he says, listen, your politics are cute. But how about you follow me? Name one other religion where tax collectors and Simon the Zealots find this common mission. Sadducees and Pharisees, it actually turned out, didn't like each other in the first century. And it turns out that even in Jesus' death, the enemies of Jesus found common ground. The point is this. It's almost like every time Jesus shows up, enemies start loving each other. 
Miroslav Wolf wrote a beautiful piece on this, and he, and he, he reflects on what, what if Cain and Abel knew Jesus, and, and the new heaven and the earth, new earth come, and he says, he says, I wonder what heaven will be like when Cain and Abel meet once again. Cain will have to learn to look an Abel in the eye, and Abel will have to learn to not run away anymore. I love Karl Barth's famous phrase. He was once asked, will we see our loved ones in heaven? And Barth was quick to reply, oh, not only your loved ones. And the point is this. When the Spirit of God is present in Jesus, and the Spirit of God is present in the church, we begin to become advocates for God's reconciliation on this planet. That the lamb would lie down with the lamb, the lion. That the child could be the next to the infant. I wonder, friends, what it looks like for us to have a healed relationship with creation. You know what? When the Spirit is upon us, the ministry of reconciliation is always present. What would it look like for us to begin to live alongside creation in a way that honors it the way God wants it honored? What would that look like? I invite you to pray that to Jesus, to the Father, to the Spirit, and ask, how can I begin to live at peace with what God has made? Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus, as we finish our time together, I praise you with God's people that you are a good God who creates only good things. Do we mess it up? We do all the time. But God, you make good things. And as we reflect on the goodness of all that you have made, we can't help but give you a little extra praise this morning. You are a good God who makes a good world that's very broken. But you are a good God. And we praise the creator that we might learn to love creation. But God, we can only do it if we love you first. And so we turn our hearts and our minds to you that we might best serve the world around us. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Would you say amen? Amen. amen.